It is good to be worshiping with all of you online today, as well as all of you who have come out to worship in person on this cold January morning. We are excited to start a new sermon series entitled Crosswise, Understanding Jesus' Death. We're going to be looking at several biblical texts over the past, I mean over the next several weeks that tell us different aspects of the meaning of the cross. Today we're going to start with Mark 10, 35 through 45. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of my sermon is Ransom on the Cross, Freed to Serve. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles... Those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. James and John were seeking the perks of discipleship, the privileges of being in Jesus' inner circle. They were his very first disciples, after all, having signed up before the other ten, so they wanted a little bit of favoritism, you know, some special treatment. If Jerry Jones's buddies get good seats at Cowboys Stadium, uh, shouldn't James and John get the good seats beside him in glory? If Oprah's friends get to be on TV with her sometimes, shouldn't James and John get to share the spotlight with Christ? Knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, the King, the greatest James and John wanted to be second and third greatest. 
This ambition had been on their minds at least since Mark 9, when the disciples debated who was greatest among them. It was not a good look. Here they were, supposed to be apprentices to the Christ. And they were arguing like kids at the schoolyard about who was better than who. Jesus seized the teaching moment. In Mark 9, verse 35, he got his disciples together for a meeting, had them sit down, and he said to them, Look, guys, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. This did not register. Not a bit. Maybe the disciples were answering email during this portion of the meeting. Maybe they had their AirPods in and they were kind of jamming when he was talking about this to themselves and they missed the message all together because here we go again in Mark chapter 10 with James and John desiring prominence and dominance. How unfitting for Christians Yet how typical. They misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingship. They thought he was going to set up an earthly kingdom uh, when they got to Jerusalem. And they aspired to prestige, celebrity, and influence alongside him. They wanted to ride in the back of the limo, stay at the top of the hotel, and dine at the head of the dinner table. They were looking to ride Jesus' coattails to an elite existence. They had been on the mountaintop with him back in Mark 9 when Jesus' face began to glow and his clothes turned dazzling white. And they decided they wanted a bit of that glory for themselves, an elevated position, a lofty status, a shiny destiny. Teacher, they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus replied. They sure didn't. The two men who actually ended up on Jesus' right and his left were a couple of bandits dying on crosses. The two men who actually ended up on Jesus' right and his left were criminals flanking him as he writhed and withered on a cruel cross. On their way to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking the way of the cross, yet James and John thought they were strutting toward high-ranking offices in an earthly empire. When the other ten disciples caught wind of their special request for good seats, they were incensed, not because James and John had misunderstood Jesus, but because they had beaten them to the punch. The ten got a little jelly, you know, a little jealous, a little envious, because they wanted the big-time seats beside Jesus, too. They were craving authority and supremacy so they could boss people around. 
Even if they couldn't be king, they could be vice messiah or a regent or a duke or something. They were thinking, Jesus is king and we are taking over this world. We're going to bring the Romans and the Greeks to their knees. It's our turn to be in charge. It's our time to have uh, power. We might be tyrants, but we'll be tyrants for Jesus. As for Jesus' response to all this, he called it pagan. According to Jesus, infatuation with conventional forms of power is unholy. Fascination with rank and status is ungodly. Ambition for world domination is unchristian. The disciples were seeking a crown instead of a cross. They were seeking sovereignty instead of service. They wanted to populate a conventional empire with a new set of figureheads and practice the same old tyranny but to their own advantage instead of representing the odd, peculiar, strange, counterintuitive, unconventional way of Christ. But it is not so among you, says Jesus. This one line overrules all worldly concepts of greatness. But it is not so among you. This one line overthrows all the prevailing criteria for greatness. But it is not so among you. This one line signals that the church is a different kind of community with a different kind of ruler and a different standard of greatness. Whoever wishes to become great among you, says Jesus, must be your servant. In stark contradistinction to the world. The church understands greatness in terms of service rendered rather than service received. James and John wanted the places of honor at a grandiose dinner table. Jesus said greatness was exemplified by the waiters. James and John wanted, you know, high opulent seats in a throne room. Jesus said greatness was in the servants' quarters. James and John wanted to wear bejeweled crowns. Jesus said greatness was an apron. James and John wanted to run things. Jesus said greatness was running errands. James and John wanted a share of his sovereignty. Jesus wanted them to share his service. Another name for James and John, by the way, is you and me. We often imagine greatness in worldly terms, too. We think greatness is an Oscar or a Grammy, a Pulitzer or a Nobel. We think greatness is a bestseller or a viral video. We think greatness is a Heisman Trophy. 
or the green jacket. We think greatness is the back of the limo, the top of the hotel, the face on the screen, the size of the entourage, the total net worth, or the number of followers. We think greatness is the Oval Office, or the Governor's Mansion, or the cover of Fortune 500, or the celebrity on stage. Maybe we've been busy answering emails or tuning into our AirPods when Jesus says, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Notice that Jesus does not criticize the desire for greatness, but the definition of it. Become great, yes, Seek greatness. Yes, just remember that the way to the top is at the bottom. The way up is down. The way to exaltation is humility. The road to glory is paved with service. Glory is service. Jesus confirmed this in John 13 when he grabbed a basin and a towel and washed his disciples' feet. The washing of the feet was a menial chore in the ancient world that was typically assigned to the lowest of slaves. Yet Jesus the Messiah willingly washed the grungy feet of his followers. Wash one another's feet, he said to them, indicating that to be a student in his school of thought, to be a follower of his way, is to become a lowly servant to others. Most kings, you know, like to be called your highness. Jesus might prefer your lowliness. As his disciples, we do not ascend to greatness. We descend to it. We do not soar our way to greatness. We serve our way to it. Jesus says in verse 45 that even he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the purpose statement at the top of Jesus's Resume. This is the quotation in the middle of his homepage. This is his raison d'etre, his motivation for existence, his intention, his goal, his aim, his objective. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is a singular verse in Mark's gospel because it answers the question, why did Jesus come? He came to serve. He came to serve by welcoming the outcast. He came to serve by feeding the hungry. He came to serve by healing the sick. He came to serve by blessing children. He came to serve by washing feet. He came to serve 
by dying on the cross. According to Jesus, he gave his life a ransom for many. A ransom referred to the payment that was rendered in order to secure the release of a slave, a condemned criminal, or a prisoner of war. When the ransom was paid, the one in captivity was set free. Amid the endless debates about the meaning of the cross, it's worth noting that Jesus saw his death as a ransom payment. The language of ransom implies that we are in bondage. It implies that we have been taken captive. Indeed, we have been taken captive by the power of sin. The sin of humanity is clear enough in this passage as the disciples show pride, self-interest, jealousy, rivalry, and a desire for dominance. We too are selfish and prideful. We too are self-centered, wayward, and flawed. Jesus says in Mark 7 that evil intentions come from the human heart, including fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. The reason is that sin holds us in bondage and we cannot shake loose. It's like we're tied up and we cannot wiggle our way out. Our only hope is for outside help. So God comes to us in the person of Christ and pays the ransom for our release. On the cross, Christ pays the price to set us free from captivity. This is a gift of grace Christ offers us. He went to the cross so we could be turned loose. He purchased our release by turning himself over. He bought our freedom through this divine transaction. Mark paints a picture of all this in chapter 15 when we are introduced to a man called Barabbas. The Romans were holding Barabbas prisoner because he was an insurrectionist who had committed murder. Barabbas, in other words, was the quintessential sinner. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, asked the crowds if they wanted him to release Jesus for them. But the crowds yelled, for him to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. So Pilate did. And in that pivotal moment, a sinner went free as Christ went 
to the cross. Barabbas walked out of captivity as Christ walked toward Calvary. We can almost see these two men brushing shoulders. Christ on his way to death and Barabbas on his way to new life. The name Barabbas is intriguing, by the way. In Aramaic, Bar means son of, and Abba means father. So Barabbas literally means son of the father. Barabbas is a symbolic figure who represents every child of the Father. Every sinner Christ died to redeem. Every single Christian believer. We are all in bondage to sin. We are all held captive. And Christ died as the ransom to set us free. The question becomes, what did Barabbas do with the rest of his life? What did he do with his newfound freedom? What became of him after Christ died in his stead? The cross is not merely transactional. It's also transformational. Jesus ransoms us so we can serve others. Jesus redeems us so we can help others. Jesus liberates us so we can love others in the way Jesus himself has exemplified. We cannot receive his ransom without also receiving his example. We cannot accept his crucifixion without also accepting his call to serve. We cannot embrace his glory without also embracing his definition of greatness. Those who are redeemed are those who serve in the likeness of Christ. Those who are freed by the cross are those who are formed by the cross. Paul writes in Galatians 5, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become servants of one another. I've known Christians who serve children by teaching and nurturing them. That is greatness. I've known Christians who serve senior adults by being caregivers for them. That is greatness. I've known Christians who serve their spouses with faithful love. That is greatness. I've known Christians who serve the homeless with compassion. Greatness. I've known Christians who serve the sick with medical care. 
greatness. I've known Christians who serve the hungry with food. Greatness. I've known Christians who serve veterans with respect. Greatness. I've known Christians who serve persons in poverty, persons of different abilities, persons who are disadvantaged, persons who are in prison. Greatness. I've known Christians who serve behind the scenes, beneath the radar. Christians who serve thanklessly, tirelessly, humbly. Christians who serve all they can in every way they can. Greatness, I say. Greatness. When I was growing up, there was this one woman I saw at church all the time. She was a dedicated member of our congregation who helped with events, who helped with ministries, and who helped with meals. I remember I would see her setting up chairs and tables or sweeping the floor. I remember at the end of our fellowship meals there in the fellowship hall, I would bring my tray over to the window and she'd be in the back washing dishes, sweating up a storm, working tirelessly with a smile on her face. There was this glow about her. She wasn't a paid staff member either. She was a volunteer. She did what she did to serve the community. She did what she did. She labored. She worked for the benefit of other people. Looking back, I really don't know what the church would have done without this particular woman. She was always organizing and setting things up, always cooking and baking and cleaning. She was always working behind the scenes to make things happen and make things good for the whole community. It's only fitting, looking back, that this woman's name was Gloria. Gloria the servant, Gloria the great. She showed me at a young age that glory is washing dishes. Honor is wearing an apron. Grandeur is sweeping the floor. Majesty is a towel and a basin. Magnificence is menial chores. Royalty is running errands. Eminence is helping others. Highness is lowliness. Sublimity is humility. Illustriousness is kindness. Top is bottom. First is last. And greatness is service. At least that's what greatness is for all who follow the crucified king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. If you have never put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never experienced